0: And today we are rewinding back to September the 22nd, 2015. This was originally episode 1649, and it was called, Does Permaculture Lead to Anarchism? And this was one of those shows that sparked a lot of discussion, and it sparked it on the blog uh, where the episode was actually published and we don't get as much discussion on the blog. I feel like a lot of the discussion has moved over to Facebook. This was prior to us having the Facebook forum group when the pages on Facebook were still like, you know, if you subscribe to a page you actually saw what was on the page um, and there was a ton of discussion there as well. And then there was a ton of discussion uh, on Facebook where people shared this post and there was a ton of people who had a really big opinion about this but They didn't actually listen to the show. So their opinions were largely based on the title alone, and a lot of them that had that opinion um, (coughs) came from two camps. Uh, There was a camp that knew what anarchism was, but didn't know what permaculture was. And then there was a camp that knew what permaculture was, but, you know, they didn't know what anarchism was. They thought anarchism was a bunch of idiots dressed in black burning shit in the streets. And then there was actually a third camp. There was a third camp that didn't know what the hell permaculture was and didn't know what the hell anarchism was. And it was pretty interesting to watch that. I come at this from the perspective of maybe I need to do a little bit of education on what the two things are in this episode. So I do kind of explain that. Um, I think I do a little bit more of a build-up as to what anarchism is in this, because by the time I did this episode, the average listener of TSP uh, knew full well what permaculture was. So we're going back about four and a half, four years here, I guess. Yeah, four years, Uh, 2015. Yeah, four years, right at four years. like uh, uh, three years and 11 months is what we're kind of going back to this rewind today. And just on that note, before we go with a little bit more new content for this one, reminder of why it's a rewind today. It's a rewind today because the next episode that's not a rewind will be episode 2500. And I wanted to have 2500 land on a Friday, and I think it kind of even is better because it really lands on the last work day of August. Yeah, there's one more day of August, and it precedes a Labor Day weekend. And uh, so tomorrow I will be releasing this show, the 2500 show, really, really early where people will tell you how TSP has made a difference in their lives. And if I could right now, I'd like to just let you know that um, Tuesday and Wednesday I sat and I screened all the calls and I marked a few that need some edits because they have uh, long pauses or breaks or something like that. Ninety-nine percent of the calls were usable. Uh, They're not all as good, you know, as far as quality of content as as the one preceding or following. They're all decent. And I wasn't going to take anybody who took the time to call and remove their call like it's some kind of like, uh, you know, like I'm judging whether your call makes the grade. Uh, What it really is is um, over 150 people telling you how their life is better. Uh, There's a smattering uh, that I'm spreading throughout of expert council members that are really cool. And it's going to be an awesome show. And by dropping it early on a Friday on a holiday weekend, I'm going to give you guys enough time to listen to it. Because it's going to be over three hours. And it's going to be very little of me. And I'll throw in now, uh, while I usually make the Rewinds completely commercial-free, I just got to tell you this because it just worked out this way. Um, I was thinking of what item to put up for the T-SPAS item of the day today, and I thought... Jerk seasoning, right? So actually, I've been if you can imagine, I've been, I've been waiting a little while to do that one. Uh, yeah, the Jamaican jerk seasoning from Walker's Wood is our item of the day. Uh, you can find it on the blog. If you're in the Daily Mail, you'll get an email every day that tells you the new posts on the blog, something good to do. And uh, the Walker's Wood jerk seasoning, really, it's, it's great for this. But, man, you can do so much with it. I won't go into that. But it's all in the write-up. And I'm talking jerk shrimp. You know, jerk steak, lots of cool stuff, not just what everybody thinks of jerk chicken. And if you ever try the Walker's Wood product, you will, uh, you will thank me for being a jerk and bringing it into your life. It comes in a mild and a hot, and even the mild is a little hot. Um, and you'll really enjoy it, and you'll realize it is for more than just chicken. Anyway, back to the topic of today's Rewind. Uh, permaculture leading to anarchism. Um, when I was thinking about this, initially I thought... This really has a lot to do with what brings you to permaculture in the first place. Why, what are your motivations for learning about permaculture? Is it because you want to be self-sufficient? I think then your path to anarchy through permaculture is rather quick. And I have to caveat that with a lot of people that are anarchists don't know they're anarchists. What they really mean is I can't figure out how the world would work With an anarchist society, or I don't think that it can work. But when you get down to brass tacks, they're really an anarchist. Because if you say, "Well, it's tax theft," they say, "Yes, okay." Should all actions between individuals be voluntary? Should you ever be able to go in and bother peaceful people and use force and coercion to make them do something? And they say, "Well, no." Okay. Well, then you're an anarchist. You just haven't. And that's okay. It's okay that you cling to some level of we need government for until you're comfortable making the psychological switch because anarchism is more of a philosophy of how you live your individual life than how anybody else does, including people that still believe in the need for a state. So it's okay that you take your time. But what I realize, it's not really the angle you come with. It's more what are you full of? Right? And I think a lot of people have just immediately said, well, most people are full of shit. Well, maybe, maybe. But that's not how I mean this. I mean this in a very very philosophical way. So there's an, a very old story. I think it comes from, from Buddhist tradition. I'm pretty sure of that anyway. It's either Buddhist or Taoist tradition. And um, the story goes that a young man, he goes to a master, and he says, I want you to teach me. And the master says, well, let's have some tea first. The young man's rather impatient, but he agrees to the tea. And the young man puts his cup out to the master who is pouring the tea in the custom that you always pour for the other person. And the master starts pouring the tea until the cup is full. And the young man expects that the master will stop pouring the tea, but the master continues to pour the tea. It spills out of the cup onto his hand all over the floor. And finally, the young man puts the the cup down in exasperation. It says, what are you doing? And the, uh, the master says, I, I cannot teach you. Like this cup, you are too full. If you come to me for wisdom, first you must be empty so that you can receive what I have to give you. And I think there's wisdom in that. But the reality is no one who's lived life can ever truly be empty empty in a way in which I am willing to put aside that which I think I know and receive as much as I can. That's possible, but you are you. You were born, you were raised as a baby, you were cared for or not cared for sufficiently, you walk through life, you developed into a young adult, and and now most of the audience here would be, you know, full on grown ass man, grown ass woman, and there's 20, 30, 40 or more years of your life behind you. You can never truly be empty. In fact, you will always be full. But the human is not like the cup. Our capacity to be full. Grows each day, if we are still expanding our minds, and if we are still open to new things. We can be completely full. And as long as we are open to receiving more, we can still take more. And we can still take more. Now, it may come to the point where there is a conflict. We call this cognitive dissonance, where the new information is counter to the old. And this is where the Master was coming from. You are not yet ready to let go of the old so that the new can continue to fill you rather than emptying oneself so the new can come in. That's the reality. And masters have a tendency to oversimplify things at the beginning so that the student can become ready. And I think that when we look at this in a more complex way, that's really where that is coming from. One cannot be fully empty. One can become empty in mind and spirit for a while in a state of meditation but you can only do that for so long eventually you have to function again and if you were harmed in some way and when that harm happened there was a loud noise if there's a loud noise you're, you're going to react you may stop jumping so much but that loud noise will always be for you something connected to that thing if there's a smell in your life like me, the smell of tomatoes when water gets on them in the garden that's from your childhood, it will always link you back there. You will never be empty. You will always be full. So I think how long it takes a person who steps into the world of permaculture or the world of liberty or the world of anything that leads to deep self-examination and then a requirement of oneself to provide for oneself, that journey can only lead to at least philosophical anarchism. But how long that journey will take and whether or not the person is willing to walk the path that is there for them if they choose to has a great deal to do with what they are full of and the mindset they are coming from. And the reason so many people are so resistant to the message of true liberty and self-sufficiency and independence is fear. And it often masks itself where people say, but what about these other people who can't Let me tell you something. The majority of people that say that, in fact, I would say almost all of them, they're not really worried that that other person can't. They're really not. They're worried that they can't. And if you are full of that mindset, it's very easy to offload it. And it's what we do. We offload our fears to others, and then we defend those other people so that we can defend ourselves without admitting our own weakness. That is what holds so many people back from taking the walk that leads to an understanding. And this is a very simple understanding. Don't hurt people, and don't take their stuff. If you agree with the fundamental underlying reality of that simple statement, don't hurt people, don't take their stuff, you're an anarchist. No matter how much you profess that you're not, The only thing that keeps you from accepting it is a lack of understanding of how it would work. The beauty of permaculture, when fully embraced as the design science that it is, it is a key that unlocks that door so that you can see that which you already know. With that, let's go back to September 22nd, 2015, episode 1649 when originally published, does permaculture lead to anarchism? And I would say the answer is a resounding yes. The only variable is how long is the journey? But I want to get into uh, a little bit about anarchism today and permaculture. And, you know, what I wrote today was, whoa, what is up with that title? I know we have a lot of strong political views in permaculture. And of all stripes, we have liberals, we have conservatives, and a lot of libertarians in in the permaculture movement. And there's a lot of discourse between them that's not exactly cooperative, too. And, I mean, we definitely have some in permaculture who are very left-leaning, social justice types that are hugely for heavy draconian regulation and heavy draconian redistribution of wealth. And then we have people like Joel Salatin that is like an uber-libertarian. And we have all types in there, so... Does the question make sense? Well, I think it does, and I think it leads many to start practicing anarchism without even knowing that's what they're doing or realizing it. What what you need to understand is there's two real types of anarchism at the individual level. And we're not talking about systemic anarchism yet, right? We're talking about the individual choosing, I am going to practice anarchism in my life by choice, or... I'm doing it without realizing that's what I'm doing. The individual. That's what this is all about today. Not the collective system. It's about your choice to exist outside of that system. Got it? Okay. So what I call these two are philosophical anarchism and action-based anarchism. And we all practice these to degrees, and you, I'm telling you, you, who's out there screaming at your your car speaker or into your, your iPhone or whatever right now, I am not an anarchist, Jack, you are wrong. You practice anarchism in the action-based form. Strangely, you'd think philosophical would come easier because this doesn't require you to do anything. It's just, just changing the way you think. But your actions have more impact on your thoughts than your thoughts do on your actions many times. If you start acting charitable, you begin to think charitable. If you force yourself to be kind, you start to think kind. It's a very interesting human dynamic. And that's what we do with anarchism. And understand, these two definitions are mine. They're not some philosophers or some from some book and maybe nobody else in the anarcho world agrees with me that's okay we don't have to agree with each other you that's one of the biggest problems i have with anarchism is one anarchist trying to tell another anarchist how to think or do or act or be basically if you're not aggressing on other people and you're not using force to make people do what you want that's enough and then you can do anything you want with that as long as you don't use coercion okay so Philosophical anarchism is when you declare yourself to be an anarchist. Like I'll say, I, I Jack i am an anarchist. And then you start making choices about your thoughts, issues, and actions based on that. In other words, instead of just examining a political question, you know, like should marijuana be legal from a standpoint of yes, it should, no, it shouldn't, yes, it should be regulated for medical use only, an anarchist sits back and goes, what business is of the state's? What you do with a plant. Well, some people smoke pot and steal stuff. Okay, that's a crime. Stealing is a crime. So all the people that don't and have never stole anything, except maybe a Twinkie from their roommate, why are we persecuting them? Why why do we even have anything to do with that? Even if we're not going to go wholesale on this, you know, no state thing, like, how does that make sense? So I think about that differently than most people would call themselves a, a Republican or a Democrat would. And that's philosophical. That's a thought and issue. When we start talking about illegal immigrants, I, I start asking, well, what's, why is everybody upset about that or why are people for that? And what is the friction point? What is the problem here? Why do we have this problem? And, and how would we go about rectifying it without forcing anybody to do anything, without stealing from anybody? So I handle issues differently. And my actions... So my first, my first question now, when I want to do something that's technically not allowed, is how can I do it anyway? And get away with it, and technically make it legal, whatever. Systemic martial arts, like we've talked about. So that's philosophical. Action-based anarchism is ignoring or disobeying authority, so long as doing so does not violate the principle of non-aggression. In other words, it's breaking the law. It's civil disobedience. It's breaking with convention. As long as there's no victim. So, to make that clear, here's some things that are action-based anarchistic things that many of us have done or would do if the situation came up in front of us. When you dress the way you want versus the way you're, quote, supposed to, that's anarchism. That means you're, you're choosing to follow your own path versus to follow the authority whether it's perceived real imagined it doesn't matter breaking a dress code is, is anarchy choosing what clothes to put on without asking anybody in the morning is anarchy when you get married to whoever you want to and i'm not saying there's nothing to do with same sex marriage since we talk about that a lot when this issue comes up with anarchism and libertarianism here. No, no. just when you choose a partner to marry and the state or your families don't arrange it for you like they used to do in the past, it's anarchy. There's no authority that determines that the two of you are, are, are going to be a couple. If you use an illegal substance, that's anarchy. It's breaking the law. No, it's anarchy. It's a choice. Knowingly using an illegal substance, a forbidden substance, would be anarchy. And that includes... A pain pill from your own last prescription. Let's say you hurt your back, you go to the doctor, the doctor gives you two weeks' worth of uh, pain pills. You uh, y- you take one a day or two a day or three a day, whatever is prescribed for a certain number of days, and your back starts stops hurting yourself. And then you don't really need it, so because you don't want to take a medicine unless you need it, you put it away. And a few months later, you wrench your back again, and your prescription's expired. You know that. You didn't check with your doctor, but you know your back hurts and you know this works, so you choose to take it. Or if your wife had one and from, from a previous injury and you choose to take it, that's anarchy. You've broken the law. You've chosen not to obey. You've made your own decision based on your knowledge, your desires, your hopes, your dreams, and your needs apart from centralized authority. Okay, When you drive over the speed limit, as long as there's no danger present to another by doing so, it's anarchy. If you're on some street that's a straight line, you can see for miles in all directions. There's no way somebody's going to dart out in front of you. You're not endangering anybody's life. And some idiot decided the speed limit there should be 45 miles an hour, and you're doing 60 miles an hour, that's anarchy. That's anarchy. You've chosen to make a judgment for yourself in opposition to what authority says. Okay. If you live in a place where they say, yeah, you can have chickens in your backyard, but you can only have four. And you choose to have ten—that's anarchy. You've decided that you can manage ten chickens without hurting anybody else. And unless your chickens are flying over your neighbor's fence and crapping on their car or their porch, it's anarchy. Now, if they begin to actually harm your neighbor's property, if they're getting into their garden or what have you, then you know this is even goes back to biblical tenets. If you move into an area and you have goats and the person next to you is a farmer, it's not their responsibility to fence out their goat. It's, it's, it's your responsibility to fence them in on the land you're managing, right? One ox scores another type of thing, right? I mean, this is basic, intrinsic human responsibility. But as long as you're not hurting anybody just because a law says not to do it, you're going to do it anyway, that's anarchy. You've chosen to do that. If you choose to go feed homeless people in a place where it says you're not allowed to give homeless people food, and yes, that exists, yes, that exists, yes, that exists, that really does, that's something our politicians and our city officials have decided needs to be done in some area, banning the distribution of food to the homeless by one private citizen to another. And you say, screw that, I am my brother's keeper by my own choice, and that man is hungry or that woman is hungry and I have extra food, I'm going to go give it to them, that's anarchy. If you use violence to stop one person from harming another, where where the one you're you're using violence against is clearly the aggressor, that would also be acceptable as anarchy. Because you didn't check to see if if you had the legal authority to act, and maybe you didn't, right? You're supposed to call 911, whatever. But if I see somebody beating up an old lady trying to steal her purse, and I go over and T-bone their skull into the ground... As long as the force I use is sufficient to defend myself and defend the other party, that's anarchy. Those are all examples of anarchy, because I've chosen to follow my principles above law or authority. That's that's what anarchy is. But to be clear, what is not anarchism, here are some things people think are anarchistic that aren't. When you steal your neighbor's property, that violates non-aggression, it's not anarchism. Stealing is not anarchism. You cannot be an anarchist and be a thief. You can't. Because you're using aggression and you're violating the primary core tenet of anarchism, non-aggression. Using violent force to harm another person because you simply don't like them or you want their stuff, this violates non-aggression damaging property of others with vandalism, arson, etc. This violates non-aggression. Anything that damages or harms another person or their property is not not anarchism. I don't think anybody's ever probably explained it to you that way before, unless you probably already are an anarchist. Um, But I want to talk to you today about just some of the biggest names we have in permaculture and what their status is. As an anarchist, I want to start out with Permaculture's primary founder, Bill Mollison. An anarchist that, that doesn't know he's an anarchist. That's how I describe Bill, because in one interview he says he's not, it, permaculture is not anarchistic, um, but then says it is. Let me read this interview to you. This is an interview on Context.org, uh, and the interviewer's name is Alan. Uh, he says, let me get to that first. Flat out asked Bill Mollison, is it an anarchistic movement? And Bill says, no, anarchy would suggest you're not cooperating. Permaculture is urging complete cooperation between each other and every other thing, animate and inanimate. You can't cooperate by making something about bossing it or forcing it to do things. You won't get cooperation out of a hierarchical system. You get enforced directions from the top, and nothing I know of can run like that. I think the world would function extremely well with millions of little cooperative groups, all in relation to each other. Now, now hold on. That would be anarchism. Basically, what he says you, you can't have be successful is statism. Okay. L- listen to it again. Um, you get enforced directions from the top and nothing I know can run like that. Right? You can't cooperate by knocking something about or bossing it or forcing it to do things. That's statism. Whether it's from the, the minarchist state to, to the, the, the ex- extreme totalitarian state. That's the very definition. Now, what's, what's interesting is the very next question. He might as well just put on a big giant A shirt, right? And and say, well, I was wrong. I'm an anarchist. Listen to this. Given all the study you've done of our behavior and your work in spreading permaculture, do you have reason to hope we'll make it as a species? Bill says, I think it's pointless asking questions like, will humanity survive? It's purely up to people. If they want to, they can. If they don't want to, they won't. I would say use all the skills you have in relation to others. And that way we do, and, and that way we can do anything. But if you lend your skills to other systems that you don't really believe in, then you might as well never have lived. You haven't really expressed yourself. In other words, avoid coercion. I'm just saying, man. This is the man's own words. Uh, if people want some guidance, I would say just look at what people really do. Don't listen to them that much. And choose your friends from people you like, who you like what they do, even though you might not like what they say. So choose your friends based on their actions rather than their words huh? It's us chickens, and that's what he was earlier in the interview, he says we're like chickens, we go out and do stuff, we have to be controlled in our doing of things in our own minds, so we have to think about what we do before we act, right? It's us chickens that are doing it. There's no need for anyone else. We are sufficient to do everything possible to heal this earth. We don't have to suppose we need oil, or governments, or anything. We can do it. We don't need government. Okay, (laughs) I, I, I... there's an incongruency in that interview, except that I think sometimes an interviewee answers a question in the way that they, that you've meant it. And he may have taken the interviewer's question of anarchy to mean something that anarchy isn't. But he's just described, we don't have to suppose to need oil or governments or anything. We can do it. We don't need government. You, you could not be. So I'm going to say Bill Mollison anarchist that doesn't understand the word anarchy or at least in that instance did not answer the question as as I would have asked it anyway. David Holgram, who was the co-founder of Permaculture, a self-declared anarchist, a, a man who in a recent interview said, well, what do you think about this, came out and said, well, as an anarchist, I think, okay, that's done, okay, so the two founders are anarchists and David has has got to have blown the minds of what Paul Wheaton calls purple breather permacultures, um, and and the social justice crowd because they've always used his slightly different terminology of the the third ethic, which is supposed to be supposed to be <laughs> setting limits to population and consumption. Okay, also can be defined as return of surplus. He changed it to redistribution of surplus. And this was taken by all the people in the social justice crowd to be justification from permaculture ideology to go take other people's stuff and use the government to redistribute it. That's not what anarchy is all about. You're not about centralized authorities. Redistribution from the Holgram world is about redistribution to the people who participated in the production. So if if you and I and 20 other people put a farm together, it's right that we should share the surplus with each other. And then we may choose to share it with other people in need. But there's no one to come in and make us do that. So David Holgram, avowed, declared anarchist. Jeff Lawton teaches anarchism, though I think he would claim not to be an anarchist. I don't want to speak for Jeff on this. Um, but Jeff has, has, has said way too much about how to avoid government interference to not be practicing practical anarchism. I remember one thing where Jeff was talking about having a pawn somewhere right, and technically there's not supposed to be a pond there, so they put up just a little stand-up pipe on the other end of it, and all you got to do to drain the pond is just push the pipe down, so when anybody came around that would bitch about the pond, they just would drain it, and since it was a relatively small pond, they could use larger water sources upgrade from it to turn the pipe back up and fill it up after they went away. Guys, that's anarchism! That is the state saying you cannot do this, and somebody's saying, "Well, actually, we can, and you don't need to know how." Uh, I remember reading another interview with Jeff Lawton where he responded with something with saying about talking about sedition, and he says, "I wouldn't mind a little sedition here and there." Sedition is opposition to the state; it's going against the will of the state; it's bringing down power by taking it back into your direct control. I, I, I'm going to say. Jeff Lawton, practicing anarchist that probably doesn't use the word, okay? Uh, Joel Salatin is a self proclaimed liberal, libertarian who is a absolute like 12th degree black belt master of systemic martial arts. I talked about earlier last week, right? This is a guy that figured out every single way around the law to do business as a local farmer and wrote a book called What? Everything I want to do is illegal. I'm not going to change Joel's words. Joel is a libertarian by his own admission. That often leads people to anarchism. But in practice, he is doing things in defiance of the state at all times. He's not working to change laws inside the system. He's violating laws in a smart way that are requiring the system to bend down and change for his benefit. And for all of our benefits. In other words, working outside the system is more effective than lobbying inside the system. So I'm going to say libertarian that practices anarchism. Toby Hemingway, author of Gaia's Garden, one of the most well-known people in the movement, self-declared anarchist, came on the show and said so. Byron Joel, really great guy out of, out of Australia, doing really great things, self-described anarchist. Ron Finley, guy in California, the guerrilla gardener, that's anarchy in of itself. A guy that's changed the foodscape of, of, of Los Angeles by working outside the system. I have no idea at all what his political beliefs are, but his practical application is anarchy. Ron fin- Paul Wheaton, Paul I'm pretty sure isn't an anarchist, but he damn sure practices anarchy. His whole Wheaton Labs experiment, his whole Ranch on the Hill, his whole Ant program, all of that is anarchy. It's individuals choosing cooperation outside of the system. I mean, this is is practical anarchy at its finest. I love what Paul's doing. Mark Shepard, I'm going to call Mark a libertarian. He's never actually said what he is. But I just have to look at his business practices, the way he talks, the way he speaks, what he says, and say, that's very libertarian. Um, He's also an expert systems martial artist. This is a guy that knows how to use the system against the system in ways the system never intended. So he'll go out and take a client and say, let's put in a whole bunch of these swale things. And the the, the, the customer says, we can't do that, and I can't afford it. And he says, oh, yeah, you can. We can get the government to pay for it with, with subsidies. Well, uh how? Okay, we'll call them USDA Code 600 Agricultural Terraces. Well, are they? Well, yeah, they are and they aren't, but they are. And if we call them that, then they qualify as that. And therefore, not only will you not be prohibited from this installation, but you can make the systems pay for it itself and bend the system to your will. And we can get a couple million trees planted on a few different farms and and start changing the entire concept. Now, is that true anarchism? Because it is taking money from the system. But it's taking money that's already there to do something permanent and to change things for the better. Is it a little borderline? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. But does it work? Does it work? And did he put that system in place? Right? And... Once it's done, and everything's done and paid for, like the farmer's installed and the subsidies run out, does that thing continue to work in perpetuity? And the answer is absolutely yes. It's a permanent alteration of the landscape for the better. And it allows the transition out of the subsidy. So the farmer that's in the subsidy world, that's so trapped by it like an ant lion in or an, ant, an ant lion hole, look that up if you don't know what an ant lion is. And that's how farmers are today. Once they're on the subsidy tit, they can't get off. It's actually a path off. So it's you're gonna be taking subsidies anyway. Let's take these ones that lead you out of them permanently. Another example of Mark's systemic martial arts, a lot of places you can't do a pond without a permit, right? But you can get filled dirt from one place on your pond and put it in another or one place on your farm and put it to another place. So that's what he does. He calls them pocket ponds. I call it the shepherd sheet. We won't get into that because you have to have at least a cursory understanding of modified key line design to understand exactly what I mean by shepherd sheep. But just think of it this way. You can't put a pond in. Okay, can I take some dirt from here and move it over here so this spot is flat so I can drive my equipment across it? Well, it's your dirt. Of course you can. And now there just happens to be a pond there. He knows full well what he's doing. It's violating the spirit of the law that requires permitting and permission and everything else. Why? Because it makes sense to frickin' do it. And you shouldn't be prohibited from doing it in the frickin' first place. See, all of these people are either out-and-out out anarchists, or they have come to a conclusion that this is what precipitated the title of this show. Permaculture leads you there whether you want to go or not. And let's talk about why. Why would that be the case? The first thing is, as a design science... As a design science, it leads to real solutions. In other words, we no longer look at a problem if we're actually doing permaculture like saying, well, are the Democrats or the Republicans right? Or which is the lesser of two evils? We actually say, okay, let's pick this problem apart from, from, from where we see the problem all the way back to its genesis and every moving part along the way and then sit back as designers using a scientific approach to design a solution out of the problem. Okay, And if you do that, you're going to find a way to fix the problem. And many times you'll find that solution is technically illegal. So you found a way to fix your problem. Technically, you're not supposed to do it, but it harms nobody and you can get away with it. Sooner or later, you're gonna find several of those things. Not only are you going to do them, you're gonna start teaching other people how to do them too. That is anarchism. That absolutely is anarchism. That's not waiting. That's not going down to the state house and saying, hey, look, we should be able to make ponds. Come on, these are small ponds. Here's what they do. Here's all their ecological benefits, blah, blah, blah. Like, Mark, no. I'm just gonna move some dirt over here. If anybody asked me why I'm gonna say I needed fill there, I had to have a road. Well, that's a pond now. No, it's not. That's a hole that holds water. I had no intention of making a pond. But there's a whole bunch of birds now there. I think we should protect their habitat. Don't you touch that. Okay. Right? That's, that is what happens. You find a solution. This works. This increases biodiversity. This allows access. This reduces my water problems. This makes me money. This harms no one. I'm going to freaking do it. Okay. The next one is it's ethics based and concerned with people care. This is what people do not understand about anarchism. Most people we when you tell them about non-aggression, the non-aggression principle. So to be an anarchist, you can't use aggression against other people unless it's in defense of life or property. You can't use coercion. You have to make your case and if people want to work with you fine and if they don't then you cannot make them do it. You cannot take their property. You cannot take So when people hear that they think well, you become an anarchist and then you're required as an anarchist to think that, like a religious conversion, you, you 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 hear about a religion, okay, and then you join that religion because parts of it make sense, and then you're taught, either from being childhood and born into it or as a converted adult, the 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 components of the faith, and then you practice them because you're obligated to by your faith, and most adult conversions in religion. That's exactly how it works. Child, children are taught, therefore they have no idea of the alternative. But most adult converts to any faith adhere to the tenets of the religion because they've chosen the religion. Make sense? Okay. Most people would then say, well, anarchism is some sort of state-based religion or stateless religion. And it works the same way. You become an anarchist, then you learn the tenets of anarchism. And because of the tenet of non-aggression, you say, well, to be an anarchist, I have to not aggress.'" That's not how it works. What happens is people who are, who are already of the mindset that aggression and coercion is wrong eventually find anarchism. They are not adherents to the non-aggression principle because they're anarchists. They're anarchists because they're adherents to the non-aggression principle. And that's what ethics-based permaculture is all about. Permaculture is based on 3X ethics. We should not harm the earth. And the truth is we could combine that down to to, to, to to two, because we could say also, if you're harming the Earth, you're harming people. There's, you, you will die. You, you have a finite life. We're lucky if we live to be a hundred years old. right? We're lucky if we live to be a hundred years old. So when you're done with this place, other people have to deal with the shit you made. So if you're caring for people, you can't harm the planet. Right, So we don't, we don't damage the planet, we don't hurt people, and we return surplus to the first two ends. We don't redistribute. We, we put things back into a system. Otherwise, we're mining. See, farming has become a mining operation. A real farmer looks at his land and says, I must at least keep it as good as it is right now. It should get better every year. It really should. But at a minimum, I cannot let it get worse because then I'm taking from the land. Instead of using the land to produce, I'm extracting. That's mining. So in permaculture, we say no mining. No mining the land. We actually cultivate the land and make it better. If, if you're in an ethics-based environment, you're, you're going to tend toward anarchism because you're going to start to say to yourself, okay, look, Locking this person up because they believe differently than me is doing them harm. And I'm not supposed to harm others. Taking somebody else's property because I think someone else should have it is theft. So it just heads you in that direction. It also teaches the practice of currency creation and private banking. If you go into chapter 14 of the designer's manual, the whole thing is laid out on how to be a private banker. How to take a community and say, we're going to create our own currency to use inside this community. And the only time we're going to use their money is when we have to interact with them at the edge or outside of the edge. And if we're really smart, we'll create some sort of system that allows these different communities to exchange their own currencies outside of the system. How much more of an anarchistic thought could you get? That That is removing control from the oligarchy right there. Because the primary way they control you is with the creation of money. Now, has anybody actually done that to a high degree yet? No, and Bitcoin's the closest thing we've ever gotten to it. And, and, and that protocol could be adapted down to, to infinite numbers of individual trans, transactionable currencies that all convert back and all could convert to other things with other people. So it actually is the solution, and it was developed where? Outside of the system. And now the system is emulating Bitcoin. I, I got, on Monday, I'll be talking next week about how some of the biggest banks in the world are now developing blockchain technology. To run global finance on a Bitcoin-based protocol. Oh, by the way, while the Bitcoin world is already doing better than that, they're trying to catch up. No one asked permission. Right? No, and the governments all around the world said, you can't do this, it's illegal. Okay, damn it, that doesn't work. You need a license! How do we do that? I don't know. I don't know. Don't trust it! They trust it anyway. Shit, what do we do? Let's, 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 let's emulate it. Every person that's ever changed the world, majorly to the better, has operated outside the system. Start naming names and you'll see what I mean. They've all committed acts of direct civil disobedience without harming anyone. And the people that have done the greatest harm were almost always obeying the law when they did because they were using the state to do what they did. From Hitler to Tamerlane and back again, they were following the law of their land when they did it. They were in the system. Next reason it leads to it, it's a design science which causes you to question everything. You can't practice science with preconceptions. It's one of the big problems we have in the world of science today. To take a scientific approach, you do take quantitative knowns in the beginning, like you don't have to relearn that water's wet, Right? You don't have to relearn that if I tie a rock to my neck and throw it in the pool and the rock is more than I can lift even in water and, and the rope's two foot long and the water's eight foot deep, I'm going to kill myself if I don't have a knife to cut the rope. You don't have to relearn all that, okay? But, but you, you, you have to also say, based on the quantitative knowns, what is the unknown? And Then you have to start questioning even what you think you know. We know what gravity is. Do we really know what gravity is? The answer, no. Science doesn't even really know what gravity is. It's highly debated what really is gravitational force. So even the knowns are not known. Or even the knowns could be misinterpreted even if they're known properly. Or the relation of one known to another. That's scientific thinking. Permaculture scientific thinking. This will work. Well, maybe it does. But maybe something else works better. That probably won't work better. Great. Well, I'll experiment with it and let you know whether you're right or not. That's what everybody in the permaculture world does. And it's awesome to see all these people experimenting with things, including all the failures. Because the failures teach us what doesn't work. You need freedom to fail. See, that's what we're creating. We're creating a world where people aren't free to fail. People need the freedom to fail. And design science is going to lead you to successes and failures. But it's going to lead you above everything else to start questioning everything. And when you start questioning everything, you're going to question what? Authority. You're going to question law. You're going to question the state. You're going to start asking questions like, why do we have this restriction when the people violate it aren't hurting anybody? Right? Or you might start questioning big, deep political topics like, okay, this whole gay marriage thing. The Supreme Court just ruled that the reason for their ruling is that marriage is a human right. That human beings have a right to choose their marital partners. Okay, fine. Then why do you need a license to practice a right? A right should not be something subject to licensure. I mean, you're taught that in defensive driving class when you're 16, right? The reason they can take your driver's license away it's because driving's a privilege. And we can get into whether that's true or not, but that's that's how the state justifies it. You're on public roads, paid for public funds, driving a motor vehicle that could harm other people, and therefore, this is a privilege. And you do not have to have a driver's license to drive a car. Did you know this? If you own your own private property with your own road system on it, you can have a car, you can have no registration, you can have no insurance, you can have no license plate, and you can have no driver's license. And you can drive your ass off. Why? It's all yours. It's not a privilege. Now you're using your own property to do your own things. I'm not saying there's nowhere that they prohibited that, but in most places, you can't even be asked for your license on your own property unless you observed entering it from other property. So if I have a 10,000-acre ranch in Texas with a fence all around says no trespassing, sheriff can't come there and say, hey, I saw you driving your truck from your, your house to your barn. Where's your driver's license? He can ask if I let him on my property, if he has probable cause to be there, but he can't cite me for it. There's no offense. Right? So, why do we have any government issuing a license for people to practice a privilege? I mean, what anarchists say is licensure is when government steals your right and sells it back to you. Well, in this case, the government's come out and said it's a right. So, why don't we just get the government out of that business? Then we can all stop fighting about it. Oh, that's why. So you start asking questions that lead you to these conclusions, like, that's why they wouldn't do that. Or you might say, where did this whole practice, was this always this way? Because I I keep hearing about this traditional marriage thing, so did you always need a license to get married? No. Well, when did it happen? Shortly after the Civil War. What happened then? The freeing of the slaves. Okay, so what was the concerns? The concerns was interracial marriage, and the states wanted to prevent it. That's why it even exists. See, you start going down that path, you start to say, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. And no matter what you think about the choices of others, you start to ask, why are you or anybody else qualified to prevent somebody from making that choice until such time that it harms somebody else's life, liberty, or property? And you can't start thinking scientifically without getting there a little bit. You really can't. The next thing is, there's no room for your bureaucracy in permaculture. A tree doesn't care about your title. Permaculture, when practiced an agricultural science, which is where it's primarily known as, though, as I said before, the thinking can be used to design anything, from a community to a business to a, a, a farm, anything you can think of. But it doesn't have room for someone to say, well, I am the Secretary of the Interior, and therefore all the trees will grow. A tree doesn't give a shit. You either give a tree what it needs, you plant it properly, it's given the support that it needs and it grows, or it doesn't get those things and it dies. If you set up a farm, you either get enough production to make a living or you go out of business. Especially if you're doing it in the permaculture way where you're not living on subsidy. Where you're not going big or going home like the Ag Department told our farmers back in the 70s. When you go carve out your little niche, it works or it doesn't. And there's there's no place for people who want a desk job. And and that's why the people that Paul refers to, really Larry Santoyo is the one that came up with the term, as purple permaculturists are so frustrated. Because they're people that naturally crave the bureaucratic path. They want to tell other people what to do. They want to enforce, even if they're good gardeners or whatever, they want to say, everybody needs to do this. Well, it doesn't work that way. There's no pope of permaculture. There's no. I don't care if Paul Wheaton calls himself a duke. It's 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 funny, but it doesn't matter because the guy that gave him a title, Jeff Watt, has no authority to give anybody a title. There's no one in charge. Paul can be a duke or the freaking president or the emperor of his little piece of a mountain in, in Montana, but he can't tell me what to do. And he can get together with 20 other people that think Jack Spirico is an idiot and say, Jack Spirico should stop talking about permaculture. Not that he would. I think he likes what I do. But if he, if he wanted to, he could do that. And you know what he could do about it? Not a damn thing. There's no room for bureaucracy. There's no permits in permaculture. Even a certification is only recognized because the people recognize the authority of others in the market as teachers, not as authoritarians. Basically, it's a meritocracy. In other words, those that get shit done succeed in the world of permaculture. Whether they succeed as teachers, whether they succeed as authors, whether they succeed as educators, whether they succeed as farmers, whether they succeed as business people outside of agriculture, it doesn't matter. When it comes to using this stuff, you either get it done or you don't. It's 100% meritocracy. When you start thinking with a meritocracy mindset, that immediately says, well, there's so many things. We don't need somebody else to tell us whether or not work. We know whether they work. We don't need somebody else taking somebody else's shit. If it's about getting shit done, people that get shit done get more out of it. And it's not right for them to have their shit taken against their will through the use of force by people that will use guns to take it if they refuse to give it to them. This is wrong. Meritocracies lead to that sort of thinking. It's also about rewilding humans to live with nature versus opposing it. We have really tried to make nature bend to our will with the modern concept of agriculture for about 10,000 years. That's it. We've been here in some form or another for over a million, whether you believe that or not. I'm sorry. We have. And one of those numbers is a hell of a lot smaller than the other. And human beings are native species to planet Earth. This is one of my big differences of opinion with the purple breeders, okay? Human beings are not a virus. We are not an invasive species. Our systems are the virus. Our systems are the invasive species. And it all came from slavery, and I'll get to that in a second. First, just accept that we are native to this planet. And we have one thing no other being that we know of has. The ability to have foresight as to what our actions will cause to happen. So to me, as a life form, speaking for myself, that comes with a responsibility. I shouldn't dump toxic chemicals on the land because I know what that will do. If I don't know what it will do, and then I'm like a monkey in that situation. A monkey might crap in a stream that other monkeys are drinking out of and eventually make all the other monkeys sick because he doesn't understand that. So if I'm doing something that's harmful without knowledge of it being harmful, then that is also a natural characteristic, and hopefully my evolution as a species will help me recognize that, or it will be a self-correcting problem. In other words, I will kill myself, and the ones that behave like me will not reproduce. Okay? We broke all those rules. We broke all those rules, and we started out with slave labor. When we discovered that we could take a field and disturb the soil and remove what was growing there, and put specific seed down, and grow a crop and get a known yield, we said, aha, this is great. And it started out as hunter-gatherers growing small plots for vegetables, small amounts of grain, and things like that. But as civilizations grew, and they wanted to grow huge amounts of food to feed that civilization... A fundamental reality came up. We we can't just have everybody be a farmer. We have to have soldiers. We have to have blacksmiths. We have to have all types of things. We have to have herdsmen. We have to have merchants to trade with other people. So we need enough labor to produce all this food. And, you know, it wasn't like there was a whole bunch of people going, "Ooh, ooh, me, I want to work 19 hours a day, please. Right? So what mankind did is they turned to slavery due to agriculture. And you can forget about the recent slavery in this country. I mean, you're going back 10,000 years of, of common practice being one side goes to war with another. The winners take the losers as slaves, which is better than death. And over time, technology and innovation reduced the human power necessary to get the job done. And then we took a massive leap forward with the advent of fossil fuels. And what fossil fuels do for the world is equivalent to like 2 billion slaves a day working 24 hours a day. And that has allowed us to break what I call the natural natural covenant or the grand bargain. That humans and the earth have to coexist with each other from a standpoint of equality. Now that doesn't mean that Mother Earth is a real person, and she could, you know, she has rights. This touchy feely crap. But what it means is I have to look at my actions with a certain amount of moral responsibility, and realize I can't just go screwing everything up. And 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 if you lived any time before now, any time in the natural interaction with humans in the wild. You wouldn't have to have anybody explain that to you because if you broke that rule, nature would kick your ass. And you'd either wise up or end up dead. And it is only this massive technological innovation that has allowed us to break that grand bargain. If I start deciding I'm going to care for some trees because they produce, even if it's just oak trees, that produce nuts. And I start caring for those trees so they can do more than they could without me. And I and all my other Cohorts that work together do this, those trees will only continue to support our advanced population as long as we continue to care for them. That's the grand bargain. As soon as you plant a plant somewhere where it wouldn't have grown on its own, you now have a responsibility if you want that plant to continue to do something for you. This includes your little poplar tree or, or Bradley pear or whatever you call it, your little ornamental tree in front of your suburban home. You stop taking care of that tree. If that's not a place that kind of tree could have survived, it'll die. Even the, even the suburbanite with the green grass, if they don't take care of their grass, it becomes a weed bed. Success is back in the forest, or it turns back in the desert, or whatever it was before they got there. That's the grand bargain. And only, only fossil fuel and technological innovation have allowed us to break that bargain. That does not mean fossil fuel is evil, and that does not mean that technological innovation is evil. It means that we need to catch up with our technology. Our morality needs to catch up with our technology and start saying, how could we be using this for good versus destruction? Because a lot of what we do right now is good, but a shitload of it is destructive. So if you are in a movement that promotes rewilding yourself, learning where your food comes from, small game hunting is a part of sustainable living, you will start to reconnect with the natural human you are and you will start to rebel Against the unnatural human society turned you into. And you can't, those of you still listening to me today can't tell me it's not happening to you. If you're doing any of the shit we talk about doing on the show, you can't tell me it's not happening to you. That you're not starting to go, I, I don't want to, I don't want this restriction on me. Many of you are moving just so you can have more freedom. That's an act of rebellion. That's a statement to whoever was preventing you. I will leave before I will let you dictate my life to me. You rewild human beings. That's not savages, right? That's a terrible term applied to native peoples who would not comply. Savage means an evil person that harms and kills others with, with no morality. That's not wild. That's not wild. Human beings in a natural state where they're unstressed and pretty sure of their safety are the most benevolent animals on planet earth i I, i've seen animals exhibit behaviors that are kind and benevolent but no one does it at the level we do no one actually says hey there's somebody way over there that i can't even see but i know they're there so i need to go help them animals will respond with some level of instinctual compassion and I, there's classic examples. One example is this is back in the 70s, and this, this is confirmed, though. It's hard to find online because that before the Internet was around. But a group of uh, aquatic trainers that were working with dolphins and a pilot whale were having a problem. Pilot whale is quite a bit bigger than a dolphin. It looks like a big cross between a dolphin and a killer whale, but it's nowhere near as big as a killer whale and not as much white on it. And this pilot whale was becoming a bully. It was, it was hitting and hurting the dolphins. And the trainers were like, we're gonna have to give up on this. We can't, they can't coexist. And they, they, they thought, like, here's a Hail Mary pass. We could try this and see what happens. They drain the tank to about three foot deep. The pilot whale is now stranded. Okay? Stranded. And in this acute panic, Starts crying out in, in pilot whale language, I, I need help, I need help. Now, whatever language dolphins speak, they don't speak pilot whale, okay? <laughs> they just don't. I, I'm pretty sure that pilot whale and, 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 and dolphin are more different languages than Spanish and English. Pretty sure of that. Just guessing, pretty sure. But the sound of distress is universal. You can hear a bird that's in distress. You know it's in distress. You hear a person in distress in any language or tongue, and you know it's distress. So you'd think these dolphins that had been bullied by this whale would be like, okay, let's kick ass, right? Let's get this guy. He's been a dick to us. No. They started swimming around the whale. They started nuzzling the whale. They started using dolphin noises that were soothing and calming to the whale. They they responded with compassion because the distress was acute and it was visible to them, and they were high enough thinking to recognize that. So then, after about ten minutes of this panic, and these dolphins being compassionate, the trainers reflooded the tank and the whale could move again, and the bullying stopped. So not only did the dolphins exhibit compassion, Not only did the dolphins exhibit compassion, the whale responded with the only word you could have to describe this response is gratitude. It altered its behavior. It learned. If these beings will be kind to me, I should be kind to them. That's crazy advanced for an animal. But it took humans to make it happen. Humans designed the learning experience. You have to have a lot of compassion to be that intuitive to think that might even work and try it. That's something you expect more from an accident than a decision. Human beings are innately compassionate creatures. Some of us are wired wrong. Some of us are messed up. But I think it's a very small number of sick people are actually biochemically messed up genetically. Very small. I think the majority of us are messed up by our environment or situations or surrounding. We're taught hatred. We're taught, we're taught bigotry. Take two children, one that's black and one that's white, and neither that's ever been told there's a problem and put them together in a room. They will never have a problem with each other. And if they do, it'll be about who gets a toy. It won't be over the color of their skin. But have those children taught that the other color is wrong and it is a monumentous thing for them ever to break out of that. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work to leave racism behind if it's been taught to you. Trust me, I know, because I had to, because it was taught to me. And it was reinforced by being in a situation in Jacksonville, Florida, back when busing was thought to be a good idea, and being a white person who was a minority in a school. Okay? So it was reinforced with all of this existing animosity and anger. And then a family that taught you that, just to be blunt, white people were better than black people. It took the Army and took years of self-deprogramming for me to let go of that shit. And to see everybody as my brother and sister, regardless of the color of their skin. It took a lot of work. But it doesn't mean that it's innate. It doesn't mean it was normal behavior. It was program behavior. And it was reinforced by environmental stimulus. The next reason it, that permaculture leads to anarchism is it promotes community interdependence versus system and centralized dependence. So exactly what Bill was saying was why it's not anarchy is why it is. The whole purpose of permaculture is for us all to work together, for us all to find common ground, to do so voluntarily, and to build our own supporting systems, to, 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 to see to our own needs, to take responsibility for ourselves and that of our children, rather than expect that someone else will take responsibility for, for ourselves and that of our children. It also focuses on real wealth above perceived wealth. There, there's real wealth in a tree. In fact, all wealth comes from natural systems. And it creates wealth that's hard, if not impossible, to tax. It it really does. It's this this rippling edge in a permaculture system where a a 10-acre property may have the largest of its abundance around its circumference where the person that's supposed to tell you how much tax you have to pay can't even comprehend what it is. It also leads, naturally, to commerce on a local level. Almost everybody that gets into it ends up with some kind of little business going on. So that alone promotes independence. And it cannot be controlled, policed, slowed down, stopped by the oligarchy. This is, this is a, a completely decentralized, leaderless insurrection. That's, that's what I consider permaculture to be. There's no one in charge. And, and Bill, as a founder, could have been in charge. Bill, once enough traction was made, could have created a structure that created a in-charge type of system, a place where people were in charge. He chose not to. In fact, he chose to do things in a way that would make it virtually impossible for it to ever happen. Thank God he was successful. So if you can't control something and you can't stop it by suppressing the leader, if you, you can't regulate it away because it's too adaptable. If if you have a design system, then in the words of Jeff Lawton, the more restrictions you impose upon it, the more elegant the design of the intelligent designer becomes. It's impossible to stop. You can't starve it out because it produces food. You can't starve it out economically because it produces economically viable systems. You can't use it to turn one person against the other because it requires cooperation for it to work. And that's why at least anarchy. Because when you start to realize the beautiful concept of human interdependence on a voluntary basis, you start to question anything that interferes with it. Well, somebody might come. Well, when somebody comes, let's worry about that then. When somebody tries to steal from us, let's worry about the then. Let's not do all of these things that interfere with people's natural lives, natural innate abilities, because somebody might do something, because people do those things all the time anyway. Maybe we need to figure out a a way to keep people from wanting to do those things. And again, this is individual. There's no one out there that calls himself an anarchist that actually knows what anarchy is. Because being uh, 17, living in your mom's basement, listening to heavy metal music and playing video games and saying the system sucks and giving the finger on Facebook seven times a day does not make you an anarchist. It makes you an immature asshole. That's what it makes you. It doesn't help that you wore black T-shirts or whatever either or have lots of tattoos or a ring in your nose. Not that any of those things in themselves are bad, but that's not what anarchy is. I mean, if you look at one of, the, one of the coolest guys I know that's an anarchist is Nick Ferguson. If you look at him, he looks like a picture boy for, like, the family man. You know? He really does. He looks like the guy that if you, if you needed a, a, a model... Right to be like the, like this, this this natural guy that takes his kids to church every Sunday and drives a nice car, right? that that would be what he would look like, especially when he, puts the, he cleans up a little bit. Anarchy isn't what people think it is, and it's not for everybody. It's for people that have made the moral decision that theft is wrong, that violence is wrong, that coercion is wrong, and say, I'm going to step outside the system, and I'm going to do what's right because it's right, and I'm not going to be stupid about it. I'm not gonna end up in jail because of it. Or if I do, I'm gonna end up in jail for like 24 hours. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna to go to jail for the rest of my life. I'm not gonna have all my wealth taken from me for tax evasion or something like that. I'm gonna be smart about how I do things. I'm gonna understand the system better than the people that run it. And I'm gonna design my way around their obstructions. And, and, I mean, that really is what it comes down to. Freedom is something that requires morality you have freedom you have to have morality and not your version thereof universal morality there's a lot of things that one group of people would say are moral and another group of people would say immoral but there's there's certain things that we all understand innately are moral unless we've been damaged in the head again through environmental factors through through conditional programming but a, a well functioning human being knows that theft is wrong they know that violence is wrong they know that one person taking something just because they're bigger and stronger and can, no matter how they're bigger and stronger can, is wrong. And when you make that moral decision for yourself, then there's almost no other choice for you to make. Because it's about the way you think and the way you choose to act and the way you interact with others. It's not about forcing that on anybody else. Somebody on the blog recently said this to me. They said, Jack, <laughs> Human beings are not capable of anarchism because they choose bondage. And my response is in anarchy, you are free to choose bondage for yourself. You are not free to choose bondage for me. And that's what I believe. And I think that when you empower people with knowledge and with the ability to fix situations, the ability to solve problems, that it's one of the most empowering things you could ever do for a person. It leads to... to What it actually does is this. Since it feels so good, and since it works, and since now you know that it works, you want more of it, and eventually becomes insatiable, I will no longer submit to the will of others who think they know better for my life than I do. Because the premise in a democracy is, and you can get into the democracy, republic, debate all you want. We are a democratically elected republic. So we are a democratic government in the form of a republic, for you nitpickers out there. But in a democracy, which is what we are, we're just not a direct democracy, what the belief is is that people are not capable of running their own lives, that we need leaders to do that for us. So the very people who are not capable of running their own lives and not to be trusted running their own lives are trusted with the election of others who will run your life for you. I think when you start teaching people to be who they really are, to take responsibility for themselves and that of their children, to care for people, to care for the earth, to have morality, to find their own morality, to to be rewilded, to interact with nature, to question everything, to design solutions, you can't come up with anything but a bent toward anarchy. In other words, a bent toward the defiance of rules that no longer make sense. And what I'll conclude with is this. If you have a child that's born with legs that are not quite strong enough for them to develop the skill of walking, we may put braces on their legs, and we may give them therapy, and we may get them up on their feet, and then those braces are necessary for walking. And the very act of walking with those braces will eventually lead them to develop strength in their legs, prevent you know additional atrophy in their muscles, and eventually they'll get to the point where you can take their braces off and maybe they walk with a cane or crutches for a little while and continue their therapy. Well, once they get to the point where they can run, we don't put the braces back on them because we don't want you to not be able to walk again. Once you've evolved to the point of being able to walk, then you walk without assistance. Many of the restrictions in society because we didn't know how to do things, so we needed laws to protect people from others before we knew how to, to, to run a society. We're evolving past the need for many of these laws. We're evolving to a point where we can care for ourselves. And instead of casting off the braces and, 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 and the, 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 the crutches and the wheelchairs, we keep asking for more. We want more support. We want more conditioning. We want more therapy. I think it's time to start asking for more freedom. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
1: What is yours and what is mine?